Good morning. Uh, Go ahead, take out your Bibles. It is important to us here, and the words will be on the screen, uh, that you follow along, especially as we start a new series going through a book that might be a little unfamiliar. And so we're going to walk through the book of Esther together. It's about a third of the way through your Bible, uh, and there is absolutely no shame here in using the table of contents. It's there for a reason, uh, but I want you to follow along. I want you to see what God's Word has to say. Uh, But listen, I am glad that we are a part of a body of people who love and get excited, or at least I hope we get excited and love, to go through books of the Bible. Um, I get excited about that. I think if we love Jesus, if we understand who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, that he did live and die for our sin and rise from the grave as we celebrated last week, we get excited about Jesus. And if we get excited about Jesus, we get excited about what Jesus said. We get excited about his word. And, And in the book of Esther, it's a special book because we get to see God's perfect work through our imperfect hands. And I love how this is laid out so beautifully. This is a great book, a great story by all accounts. Jewish people throughout history have loved the book. They always have. Uh, It tells us of the beginning, and we'll see this uh, towards the uh, middle of the book of Esther. It tells us about the Feast of Purim uh, that still continues to this day and is celebrated every single year. And the book of Esther is read at that feast. And we'll talk about that. And so it has some historic value that we even currently participate in. But I also love the book of Esther uh, because of so many things that that God reveals to us. Now, the church has not always loved the book of Esther. Jewish people throughout history have the church. We did not know what to do with it for a long time uh, because it, it really doesn't give us any motive behind what people are doing. It's kind of just a historic story. In fact, Martin Luther, the great reformer, he did not like the book at all. He thought that it shouldn't even be included in the canon of Scripture because it's really hard to interpret. He's like, what in the world is going on here? It's just a history book. And and it also is not mentioned at all in the rest of the Bible. And, And so there's a lot of different things and nuances here. And the church for the first seven centuries didn't even write a single commentary on the book of Esther. We were just kind of like, we treated it like cat street water. It was just kind of like, it's there and we notice it, but like, I ain't getting close to it. Like, I'm not sure what to do with it. And it scares me a little bit. And so that's what the church has kind of historically seen it as. In fact, one of the best commentaries today on the book of Esther, the author actually says, she says this, you probably, it might not be a good idea to preach through the whole book of Esther verse by verse through in the church. So guess what we're going to do? We're going to go verse by verse through this book of Esther because it's a beautiful book and it's in God's word. And and throughout history, before Jesus even came and walked the earth, it was included in scripture. Jesus did not mention Esther, but he mentions a whole lot about the Old Testament and he never refuted it. And because we believe that God's word is his word. And we believe that it's true when he says in 2 Timothy 3 that all of it is profitable and God breathed out and profitable for our hearts and for our lives and for our purpose. And listen, I love this book for a lot of reasons. One, we just talked about Ladies' Night. Ladies, this is one of only two books in Scripture. This is named after a woman. I think that's pretty cool. Amen? You guys were weak on that. 
but I think it's cool and I'll get more excited for you ladies, right? And throughout some of church history, you guys have tried to kind of hijack the book, um, just like you do Psalm 30, 139, 14, right? Like you are the only ones fearfully and wonderfully made. Um, but I do love that God elevates women. And we're going to see throughout this book how the gospel and a true understanding of the gospel elevates all people. That we are equally made and, and we are made in the image of God and, and we actually come together and understand by that His grace, we know Him and are brought into communion with Him. And the differences that He has created us with in His image, actually, as they come together, reveal Him in a truer and deeper way and we know Him more intimately. See, the gospel does that. There's a misconception in the world that, that Christianity, and I know that it isn't always lived out the way that it should be, and the true gospel, it isn't always lived and preached. But there's a misconception that Christianity is oppressive, but in reality, what we will see, even today in our text, is that sin is what is oppressive. That when we sin and rebel against God, we actually begin to judge one another. We begin to look at one another as though we are unequal. We begin to seek our own value and worth in who we are and what we have done. But the gospel of grace makes us understand that we were all equally created in the image of God. We're going to see that in this text. So I love that. I also love that the main character of the book of Esther is not even mentioned in the book of Esther. Now, you might think that's weird. Isn't the main character Esther? Like, it's named after Esther. Maybe you've read the book of Esther before, and you've read the name of Esther. And we will certainly, week three of the series, get to the name of Esther. But the main character we're going to find even today in our text is not Esther. The main character is not a king. It's not Mordecai. The main character, even though his name is not mentioned in the book, is God. And we get to see that he works even when we cannot see him, even when we can't feel him. And that when we don't feel him, the feelings that we have are not the things that we should trust, but the reality of his word and his truth and his actions are the things that we should trust. And when we don't see or feel him, it's only because, not because rather, he's, not, he's absent, but it's only because we don't see the full story. And I love how we get the story of Esther that reveals this. That God is moving, and, and, and I think part of the genius of this book is that God's name isn't mentioned, because it allows us to see that God is providentially working, that he's faithful to his promises, and his ultimate will will be fulfilled for his plan, and, and how he works through just the ordinary and also the extraordinary. And the book of Esther has a little bit of everything. Like, we're going to see throughout this book that it has some humor, and it has some extremely serious, awkward, uncomfortable moments. It has life and it has murder. It has justice and it has injustice. It has clarity. It has confusion. It has wisdom and it has some seriously questionable decisions being made. In other words, it's real life. And what I probably just described is your life. And, and so Esther really lays this whole thing out for us in this beautiful way. And we get to see God's in control of it all. Even when we don't see him or we don't feel him. It's this beautiful reality that, that times have changed. And Esther was written over 2,500 years ago, guys. But the hearts of men and women, our struggles, our desires, our longings, our needs, they have not changed. And we're going to see how God truly works in and through all things and all people 
to bring about his ultimate plan and will, not only for our lives individually, but in his creation to bring about everything that he has planned before time began. And it allows us not only to see that God does this, but he actually uses us and we even have a responsibility to live and be a part of that plan for our joy and his glory. And we get to see all of that through a little orphan girl named Esther who never has an angel come to her and say, thus saith the Lord, who never has a dream from God and wakes up and says, this is what I'm supposed to do, who never sees God writing in the clouds for her to know everything she's supposed to go about. But listen to me, she seeks him. She seeks him, and we will see this in this story of Esther. And when she seeks him, she finds his will. And I love how God reveals himself in the things that we might call coincidence, but we actually see it's his providence. He is always working, and he is always active. So listen, there's a lot that we could talk about with this text of of background and kind of setting it up. I would encourage you to to research that on your own. It's extremely interesting. Uh, But before we read just the nine verses that we're going to read this morning, I do want to give us a little bit of context of where this book fits. Um, It's it's not a a book that most of us maybe have done studies through or read through. And and so I just want to help us understand kind of where it is as we jump right into this story, because the story starts and just hits hard, all right? And so what's happening here, and I'll try to do this without kind of walking through the whole Old Testament. That would take up a lot of our time. Um, so we'll try to be as quickly, quick as we possibly can. And really, I just want to give you an introduction to the book of Esther and what's happening here this morning. And, and one thing that I think that God is revealing to us in this text, in these first nine verses But the book of the Old Testament, um, it it tells us from the very beginning that we were actually created by God for him. They were created for his glory, and we were created in perfect community with him, and we were satisfied in him. We were giving him glory in everything that we did. We were worshiping him with all that he created, and everything was going fantastic. I love how the Bible says that we were in our created uh, space, created by God to know him and to love him and to worship him. We were naked and unashamed. We were fully known, yet fully loved. And we knew it, and we experienced it. There was nothing that was in between us and our creator God. But when we sinned and rebelled against him, desiring to be our own gods, and we walk away from him, then suddenly there's something between us and the perfect God that created us to have community with him. There's a rebellion. There's a sin. The the community, the relationship has been broken. And we see, even with the first man and woman, that they immediately notice that and begin to cover themselves up. Why? They felt naked and ashamed. And we're left in our lives seeking our own salvation, our own ways, and and trying as hard as we can to fulfill ourselves in a way that only God can, and he created us to find in him alone. But even in that sin and rebellion, God makes a promise that he will send the Messiah to bring his people back into community with him. That God would come and live perfectly for us as we could not live. That he would die on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin. And he would rise from the grave to overcome sin and death. So that we might be brought back into community. That we might be naked, so to speak, and unashamed again. That there would be nothing between us and God. That we would be fully known by him and fully loved by him. That we would be able to live in the beautiful freedom that that brings. So he promises that Messiah would come through the Israelite people. And the Israelite people were a people that God had put together to reveal him to the nations. 
They were to reveal who, who the true God is. They were to live in the law of God, though God knew that they couldn't obey the law perfectly. That's why the Messiah would come. But the law was there to reveal the need for the Messiah and, and the way that we're to, to walk in him when we know him and the power of the Holy Spirit is living and dwelling in us when we're in relationship with God. But just like any of us would, the Israelite people, they struggle with living in the law. They struggle with giving glory to God. They struggle with revealing him to the nations. And they struggle throughout their entire history. And so God warned them that if you continue to go in this path to worship other gods, that I will allow you to go into captivity. And God doesn't leave them or forsake them, even when he makes this threat that they will go into captivity. He is going to get them into the nations to reveal him. He tells them, even when they go into captivity, how they are to live, how they are to reveal him, how they're not to just assimilate into a new culture, but to be a light shining into the darkness where false gods are worshipped. See, God will get his glory. God will reveal himself. And he would even do it in allowing his people to go into exile. They continue to rebel. And so in 597 BC, the Babylonians come in and they take over the Israelite people. They pull them out of Jerusalem. And for 70 years, they're in captivity. Again, God doesn't leave them. He, he, he lays out for them how to live. He lays out for them what to reveal. You can read about that even in the book of Jeremiah. Later then, the Medes and the Persians, around 538 BC, they would take over the Babylonians. And the king then of the Persians, King Cyrus, the grandfather of the king that we'll read about in our text today, decrees that the Israelite people can go back to Jerusalem. You guys can go rebuild. You can rebuild spiritually and you can rebuild physically. And they go back and rebuild the temple and the wall around the city. They begin to rebuild the city. And you can read about that in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. But the vast majority of the Israelite people stayed in Persia. They had assimilated. They had just become, by all, for all intents and purposes, Persian. This was the, the only kingdom that they knew. They grew up in it. They, they were Persian for all intents and purposes. And, and so when, when they were allowed to go back to Jerusalem, which they should have done, God had called his people to be in Jerusalem, to be a, a city on a hill, to be a nation of people that revealed him to the nations around them. But because they had assimilated, and there's a warning in here for us, though we don't have time to get into it this morning, they had become a part of the culture that they lived in to the extent that they no longer revealed the God that created them and placed them where they are for such a time as that. And so they assimilated and stayed. So the vast majority of people were still in Persia, though some went back. But even in that, God reveals his faithfulness. Even in these people living in Persia where they should not be, they should have gone back to Jerusalem. We're going to see that God uses them to save his people that would bring about the Messiah who would save all who place their faith in him. And in this book, we see that he uses even the most unlikely of people in the most unlikely of places and ways. So listen, if you've ever thought to yourself, how could God use me? Why would God ever use me? Would God use me? Has he forgotten me? Why am I in this place in this time with these people doing these things and these relationships? If you've ever thought to yourself that, that I don't really even know how to live in God's glory, even though I want to, because he's just never written it in the clouds. And I'm so confused all the time. What does God actually want me to do? Does that mean he's absent in my life? Is he even there? 
And listen, this book helps us answer these questions. So today, I want us to kind of just set the stage here because there is a way, a king and a kingdom, and a way in which we pursue everything that we long for, the the satisfaction, the wholeness, the purpose, the, the will and plan in our lives that the world has to offer. And I want us to see it here in these first nine verses. I want us to look at the contrast between the king and the kingdom that is mentioned by word and the king and the kingdom that is not mentioned but is in control of all things, even when unseen. And so we're going to lay this out that we are all here for such a time of this to live in the plan of God for his glory and our joy. So let's look together. Esther chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Now, I do want to say throughout this study, there are some weird names, all right? And typically when you get into Old Testament books, that's the case. We have one in our text this morning. And so uh, throughout this study, we're going to give it a good sporting try. We're not just going to read them fast and skip over them and all the stuff you do at home, okay? Um, But here we go. We get five words in and we're going to have some, some trouble. Now, in the days of now, if you have an ESV version of Scripture, it says one thing. Maybe you have a different version that says another. But that's a tough word, is it not? All right, there's a Persian way to say it, which many of our texts have. And then there's also a Greek way to say it. Now, we're going to use, and you'll see why in just a moment, the Greek way to say it throughout our study together. Most of the history we know of this king and the Persian people was given to us by Herodotus. He's a Greek historian because... Spoiler alert, the Greeks actually defeat the Persians. And so he writes the history and tells us much of what we know about this king. And so typically we know him as his Greek name, so that's why we'll use it. But his Persian name, and the way that you actually say that is Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus. All right, and, and I'm trying my hardest not to spit, but you kind of have to spit when you say it. I know that we're in the middle of a pandemic, so I'm trying to keep my saliva in the mouth. But harash ferocious, and when you try that at home today, when you think about it, just don't be afraid to spit. But, it, or, here, this is probably how you would just read it at home. This is how many people would just read it, because we're from the South, and it's just, I think that word's ahasuerus, uh, uh, right? And so you just kind of say ahasuerus. And that's the, the southern way to say it, but it's Hashverosh. But the Greek name is actually Xerxes. How many of you have heard of Xerxes the Great? Um, so that's the Greek name, and now you know why we're just going to use that. And so now in the days of Xerxes, Xerxes who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when, the, when King Xerxes sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media, and the nobles and governors in the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and splendor and pomp, of his greatness for many days. Guess how many days? 180 days. A six-month party. That's a long party. Some of you were proud of your weekend parties in college. This is a six-month party. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people, President Seuss of the Citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hanging uh, fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on mosaic pavement of uh, porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stone. 
Drinks were served in golden vessels of different kinds, and royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And the drinking was according to the edict. Get this, there is no compulsion. That means no rules. You get a golden goblet, that's your open bar pass, and there are no rules. See, typically in Persia, you would drink when the king drank, but in this particular party, the king is seated high and lifted up, looking over his people and says, I am providing for you, and you drink when you want. And there are no rules. For the king had given orders to all the staff of this place, imagine this, to do as each man desires. There were women there, but they were hired to be there. And the wives of these men went with Queen Vashti, also giving a feast for the women in the palace who belonged to King Xerxes. Now, it might seem like, as we're reading these first nine verses, that it just kind of, we're stopping in the middle of a story, and that's because we are. Um, But I really want to lay out this contrast for us in week one of what's happening here to set the tone for the story as we see how we pursue life in the things of the world and the king and kingdom that is mentioned, and as I said, the king and the kingdom that is not. I want to set up how God is working in and amongst all things, and we can trust him, and we can know him even when we do not see the miraculous, because the true miracle is that he actually works in every moment of your life and in everything. And even though we don't see his name mentioned, he is the king in control. And to do that, let's look at this first character that we see in the story, the mighty king Xerxes. All right, Xerxes, how many of you have heard of him? Most of us have heard of him. Uh, you probably, and, I, and I, it's getting a little bit older now, and I don't recommend that you go out and see this movie. Um, but it did start a mass just movement of men working out and getting abs. And so, uh, but if you've ever seen the movie 300, right? Um, you actually have seen King Xerxes and that guy that's walking, being carried around on a gold throne wearing way too much jewelry. That's King Xerxes. All right. And if you've seen that movie, those battles that take place in that movie are actually taking place between chapters one and two of Esther. And this guy is larger than life. Herodotus tells us that he ruled from 486 BC to 465 BC. The Persian Empire lasted and ruled over all other empires for about 200 years. Xerxes ruled at its height. I mean, this guy had it going on. He's in his mid-30s. He's in the third year of his reign, as we read here in our text. And the land that he ruled over was roughly 3 million square miles. Uh, almost the size of the United States. Just this, it was almost the known world. And for every uh, intensive purpose, all intensive purpose, like this guy was God. He was seen as God. He called himself God. We found inscriptions where he actually etched that, that he is the king of kings and lord of lords and that his word is the gospel truth and that all should listen to him or be killed and he should be worshiped above all other people, that he should be high and lifted up. He believed that he was God. And the people treated him as such. As I said, he was carried around on a gold throne and this guy had an entourage that would absolutely make any rapper jealous. All right, just let me tell you, like this, listen to this. There were 10,000 infantrymen around him, 2,000 horsemen, 
2,000 Lancers. So if you just took the Spectrum Center in Charlotte and you filled it up with horsemen and soldiers and then put King Xerxes on a gold throne in the middle and just imagine that big ball of people moving around when he's outside of the castle, like this guy is protected and he is confident. There's nobody getting to him. He also at his expense had this military group called the Immortals. Maybe you've heard about them. And they were so well trained that it was believed they couldn't die. So this is who he is. He's got all of this land and power and wealth. And he believes he's God. He's worshiped as God. He's protected and nobody can get to him. So he has some confidence. And he was raised with a silver spoon in his mouth. His his dad, King Darius, actually is the one who conquered most of the land that he rules. And just before Xerxes took over as king, King Darius, his dad, famously lost the Battle of Marathon to the Athenians in 490 BC. And that's where we get kind of our marathon today, a a long race that nobody should ever run and we should forget all about, right? Um, But that's where we get it. And so he lost that battle to the Greeks and it angered him to no end. And so he decided he was going to get revenge and he amasses the largest army in Persian history and history to this point, but he died before he was able to get revenge. So now Xerxes takes over, and as we get to the book of Esther, this is the history that we needed to get to, he's ready to take avenge for his father. He's had to deal with some things in Egypt and some different rebellions, and now he's got the army, he's got the men, he's got the land, he's got the power, and now he needs to show that I am God, and there is one group out there, the Greeks, that have defeated us, and so now we need to take our army against them and defeat them. There is no one that should not bow to me. And the war, as we know, as we look back in history, it would go back and forth until uh, King Alexander the Great comes along and the Greeks win the war. Ultimately, this would set the stage for Jesus to come. Alexander the Great would actually begin the road system that the Romans would build upon. And he introduced the common language of Greek, the most easy to to, uh, articulate, the most beautiful language, the most articulate language known to man as the common language. And now when Jesus comes, the gospel is ready to go out through the road and through language. And so see how God, even through history, when we look at the way that God works, he's obviously working through things that we might just call coincidence or things that we might call natural, but he is working all things to the good of his plan, that the Messiah would come and that now he will come again. And so we see that throughout history. We're going to see that all throughout this book. But those Xerxes would never work a day in his life. And in fact, it said that the last 15 years of his life, he would actually spend all of his time in his, in his harem with all of the women that are not his wife. He had multiple queens, uh, but he had a large harem of women that would just do whatever he desired. And he spent 15 years of his life just having them do whatever he desired and barely paid attention to his kingdom. So this guy has everything. He doesn't, he doesn't work very hard, but he was not dumb. Many people think he was genius. Many people think he was crazy. But one thing that he did do because he saw his word as the word of God is he developed the first postal system to get his word out. And so if I have a decree, I need everybody to immediately follow it. And so I'm going to create a system in which we can get my word to all people in all cultures and all languages. And the postal system came up with this motto. See if you recognize this. Neither snow or rain or gloom of night stays these valiant couriers from their swift completion of their routes. 
Anybody know where that's from? Yeah, the U.S. Postal Service just totally stole it from the Persians. That's, that's our unofficial motto today in our postal system. And so listen to me. Next time you go into your mailbox and you get all the junk mail out and all the reminders that your car insurance is about to end, you can thank King Xerxes. And then you can remember that the words of man will pass away, but the word of God will always remain forever. See, God is always working, but in and of ourselves, like King Xerxes, we will see that we always tend to seek to be our own God. We always worship other things to give us what only God can give us. We, we are always trying to seek the void. And in this day, he was the envy of every man. He had, as I mentioned, multiple queens. He had a massive harem of women. He had all the land. He had many servants. He had a great army. He had all the power and all the wealth. And just like people do today with those types of people, we look up to them and they looked up to him. They worshiped him. And though we would not call it that, we tend to worship them. We tend to see them as a provider. We tend to see to want to be like them. We want what they have and we worship them to get it. And let me just go on record this morning as, as to say that we need to change the scorecard. That those that we look up to, that those that we worship, that those that we desire to be like, that those that we think have everything that we want are not the ones that have it all, but they're the ones that know the one who is all. They're the ones that worship God with all of their lives. And we together are to be the people of God, to walk in the freedom that we have in Christ alone. He alone fills the void. He alone gives us the freedom that we are created to have. And he calls us together to walk towards him, to love one another, not judge one another, to worship him, not others, to worship him, not his creation. So the scorecard absolutely needs to change. And when it does not we get the same heartache and pain and trouble that Xerxes get and that the people of Persia get. And I want us to pay attention to that as we walk through this story. Well, then verse two, all right? We are moving in lightning speed, all right? Verse two, every great God has a great kingdom, does he not? So Xerxes has a palace. He's actually got two. And his winter palace is in Susa. And the citadel is placed 72 feet higher than everything else in the city because he is high and lifted up. And when he looks at others, he looks down. And when everyone else looks to him, they look up. He's God. And so everyone else is there. He is high and above all other things. And here's the question. What does he do with all this power? What does he do with all this wealth and, and success and and, and what does he do with, with all of the, the ability he has to speak into other people's lives and to provide for people around him? What does he do? What would you do? Well, Xerxes throws a party. How am I going to control all these people from all of these places? How do I show them that I am their one true God? Well, he does it by throwing a party, and it's actually extremely smart. He invites all the leaders to the palace, all the military leaders, 15,000 men, up to 15,000 men. And they have free drinks and they have gifts and they have food and they have women. And the only rule is there are no rules. And everybody here is hired for you. And for 180 days, you can come and go. We'll, we'll do some planning. Uh, but, but listen, you can just party and it's all on me because I am your true provider. 
And not only am I your provider, but listen to me, I will give you your wildest dreams. I'm not just going to give you what you need. I'll give you everything that you want. What's not to worship? What's, what's not to see me as in control of everything? And to do that in a world of people seeking what only God can give, but rejecting the God that can give it for a false sense of control and seeking a false God to save, people will worship you. People will follow you. They'll do it time and time and time again for a time. Listen, that's why so many of us in life, we have, we have sought after salvation and, and meaning and purpose and this thing, and it kind of provided for a little bit. And some of the things that we found even did more than provide what we wanted, but they gave us everything that we actually wanted for a time. And then we had to move over to this thing. We did this thing for a little bit, and then this thing for a little bit. And now, then we try to combine things, and there's got to be some kind of combination of things. And Xerxes was one of those things. And for a time, he provided everything. But the way of the world will never provide everything that you want. It will always fail. It will always fall short. It'll never give you what only God can give you. But he's, he's giving it a sporting try, and, and it seems to work for a little bit of time. And, and not only that, but verse 3, uh, he says, we know, and we talked about just a minute ago, that he's about to fight the Greeks, ready? He's, right? he's going to get revenge for his father Darius. There's a people out there that don't worship him. And so he's got to right that wrong. And so this is also a military planning session. So he's bringing all the military leaders together. He's going to throw this large party, but he's also going to do some planning, if you can plan while you're totally wasted, all right? Like, I don't know how that works. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to a wedding with an open bar, but that's not typically what happens. You don't do your best planning when there's an open bar, all right? And I won't ask you to raise your hand at how many of you had an open bar at your wedding, because I know it was one of the most embarrassing moments of your life. Everybody does it. I don't know why. It seems like to people a good idea at the time, but, but it just never ends up well. It's always embarrassing. You know those family members who totally ruined your wedding. I, I know. You do. And, and I know just a couple of hours in, because I do a lot of weddings, when it's my cue to leave. All right? And my cue to leave is when everybody starts stumbling just a little bit, everybody starts slurring their words, and then there's always, every wedding, Every wedding, there is some guy who comes up to me and has a hundred spiritual questions, and he's this close to me while he's asking them. And when that happens, I know I got to go, all right? It's not embarrassing for me, though I do feel bad for them, and, and I will say scripture is, is adamant. We should not be drunk. We should not give up control of ourselves with drink, but I'm not embarrassed by it, but I am embarrassed for them. So that's my cue to go. All right, and, but, but nothing good ever comes of that, all right? But yeah, that's what we do. And, and so they're going to have this military planning session. And, and really why I draw that whole point out is that Xerxes believes that he is so powerful and great that even though they are going to get together and, you know, they're going to kind of plan, they're getting all their military, really he's just displaying, hey, no matter what is in this world, we rule it. And we'll do a little bit of planning, but listen, we're going to throw the party before the victory because it's going to happen. The battle is a formality. Like we are going to win. And that would instill a little bit of confidence in the people, would it not? If you were a little bit worried about going to battle and you walk in and the king's not worried at all. 
and he's just lavishing you with all sorts of things and you just kind of start trusting him and suddenly you have this confidence. So see, Xerxes is not dumb. He is, he is displaying that he can provide for them. And when that happens in the world, outside of us finding our hope in Christ and knowing that he is the true salvation, we will follow anything that looks like it will satisfy. We'll follow anything that looks like it'll fill the void. So this is what the people do. And this is, was his plan. Look at verse four. The whole party is to show his glory. His splendor and pomp. He's like, I'm awesome. And you're in good hands. And when you worship me, you will have everything that you need and you will have everything that you want. And then the people will do anything for him because he's their ticket to salvation. He is the one that looks out for them until he's not. So he's like, I'm God. Here's kind of the setting. I'm God, sit back, relax, have a couple of drinks, have two, have 30. I don't care. We have this whole thing under control. All the staff is here just for you. All the women, men are hired just for you. I will sit up on my throne and we will toast to me for six months. Now, I want you just to imagine everything that's happening at this party. Not for too long, because then we might all have to repent. But just think, right? And I'm going to keep it PG, but just there's no rule. There's open bar. Everybody's got their golden goblet. All the people there. So there is no compulsion. Just do whatever you want. And nobody's going to catch you because if you brought your wife with you, he, she's with Queen Vashti. And the, and the king, the God, is the one telling you you can do it. So who's going to come up against you? So just all kinds of craziness are happening, and then they're going to go to war. And then that's not the end of the party. Then we see in verses 5 through 8, we'll go quickly through this part. After the 180-day party, the leaders leave the palace, right? They're about to go to war, and they're probably just trying to remember the plan. Like, was, was there a plan? What did we talk about? But the party isn't over. Xerxes goes, okay, I've got the leaders. They're mine. Now I need the people. I need them to trust me. I need them to believe in me. So he opens up the palace for a seven-day all-inclusive vacation for all the workers and all the people. And so here come all the farmers and the carpenters and the blue-collar families, and they're all getting to the palace, and they're going to party with their God, and they're going to stand in all of his things, and they're going to desire everything that he has, and they're going to be glad they worship someone who has it, and, and they're just going to drool over everything that they see. And see, our hearts tend to do the same thing in the world. A lot of times it happens when we walk into our favorite stores. We're in awe. We, we drool over everything. We're glad that maybe we can have the opportunity to have it one day, but we're glad it exists because it gives us some form of hope to look after, to pursue. And that's the feeling that they have. And they walk in, it describes what they see. There's purple everywhere, which was extremely expensive. And not only is it extremely expensive, and many of them probably have never seen the color purple. Imagine that. But the color purple curtain rods, they're, they're hung up on silver rods. They got gold seats and silver seats to sit down on. And so, hey, you're, you're stammering around a little bit. You need to take a seat. Hey, we had some extra gold and silver that we just fashioned into some couches for you. Like they're blown away by what they see. They, they got mother of pearl, right? Which I thought was just a pirate term, but apparently all you Southern Bells know exactly what that is. And it's something really special. There's special stones. There's purple court floors. Like you can just imagine the stature of this man. That you're walking in and you're seeing all of these things. 
and the respect that you would automatically give to them. They have everything that I want. See, this is, is how King Xerxes was. And you could see how people would believe that, that he's the one that we need to follow. He's the one that we need to live by. And again, verse 9, Vashti has the women, the wives over in another place. And, and listen, you're probably beginning to realize that this guy, Xerxes, is not the best guy. Right? Can we all just agree, like, he's a little bit disgusting if we just think about it. He has multiple queens. He, he wants to, we're going to see, he wants to parade his wife, many scholars say, say uh, in, the, in her birthday suit, so to speak, with a crown on her head in front of all the other men that are there. So he's not the best guy, but he has many wives. He has a, a harem full of women. He forces people to believe what he says is truth. He controls them with goods and services. He will take their life at any time that he wishes. And listen, it's only going to get worse from here. So we can all look at this, and maybe you're looking and making the connection with the world that we live in and the culture that we live in today. And you're like, today, I see this. I see all of this taking place. It's still dirty old men who think they're gods. Women are still being abused. Money is still being misused. It's all out of control. And none of us can find anything that actually satisfies us for more than a moment. Maybe you're not only making the connection with the society and culture we live in, but you're making the connection with your own heart. How many of you are making the connection, this one might be a little bit harder, with King Xerxes' heart in this situation? And I know there might be a little bit of pushback, and some of you are going to go, nah, I'm not anything like King Xerxes. Like, this guy's nasty. Like, I don't, I don't think like that. I don't do that, that kind of stuff. But, but listen, even if I'm honest, if I'm honest, I want everything to be about me. Naturally, I just want everything to be about me. I want it to be the way that I want it. And I think to myself, man, if I had all the money and all the power, what would I do with it? And I want to think, oh, like most of you probably, oh, I'll give to the poor. Like I would help those in need. I would help the orphans. I would help the widow. I would bring equity and equality to my community. But would you? Maybe some of us would do some of that. And certainly if you look at your bank account and the way that you spend your money and your time and your influence that you have now and you are doing some of that, then you would probably do more of it if you had more. But let's not fool ourselves. If that's just an ideal for you and you're not spending your money in that way and your time in that way and your influence in that way now, then if you had more, you would just do more of what you're doing now and it would probably be all about you. And see, this is Xerxes' heart. And this is the way that we tend to think in our own hearts. So I don't, I don't want us to be, just be quick to throw Xerxes under the bus. Now, we cannot excuse anything that he does, but our hearts long naturally for what he had. Now, we might do more socially appropriate things in our culture. But listen to me, if you had the ability to do anything you wanted to do, you could make all of your desires come true. And you would not get in trouble for it, but listen, be worshipped for it. What would you do? What would your heart be capable of? See, I think all of us have to realize that there is a lot of us that would throw the party, maybe in a different way. 
But we already, we can see, we have social media accounts where we want to post pictures of our family. And, and I love doing that. And I have cute kids and I'm not afraid to post pictures. And, and I want you to say, yeah, they're cute. But let's be honest, we post things because we want people to see our lives. We, we say things because we want to be heard and we want people to like it. We want people to share it. We've taken the art of birthday and made it a birthday month. It's all about me this month, right? Like we want things to be about us. We want recognition for everything we do and some of the things that we don't do, we'll take the recognition for that too. And so we want what Xerxes has naturally in our hearts. We purchase things like homes and cars and and clothes and we have spouses and our wealth and we want everybody to notice all of that. What would we do with the ability to get away with anything? Think about it for a moment. If you could get away with anything, what would you do? See, times have changed But our hearts have not. And in a lost world, listen to me, where we are seeking our own salvation in our own works, it leads to the perspective of anything that we do being based on the glory, the pleasure, the blessing, the power, the success, the love that it brings to us. And if it does not give me success and power and love, and it does not give me glory and pleasure and blessing, then I don't want anything to do with it. See, our hearts are sinful and rebellious at their core. And so at this point, I'm going to wrap things up with asking this question. You might be thinking to yourself, all right, is there a better king and kingdom than King Xerxes? Is there a better king than me? Is there a better kingdom than what I am producing? And maybe you feel a little bit like the book of Esther. And even though we've mentioned the name of Jesus several times, you feel like in your life, the name of God, that God and his work and his power does not exist and he's nowhere to be found. And so you're just doing the best you can and you're hoping that you can have more and it will be more fulfilling than all the other kings that have come and gone, than all the other kingdoms that have been built and fallen. And maybe today, like the book of Esther, you're just thinking, man, God's never shown up to me in a miracle. He's never shown up and spoken to me in my dreams or in the clouds. It seems like the brokenness of the world is all around me. I'm searching for good, but it's just nowhere to be found. And I just feel left to my own devices. I've got to look out for myself. I've got to be the master of my own fate. But it'll fail. We're going to see Xerxes wasn't even in control. He seemingly had the whole world, but he couldn't even control his own wife. And good for her. We're going to see it next week. He could not control his own people. He couldn't control his own temper. He couldn't control his enemies. So we have to wonder, is there a better king and kingdom? And what Esther tells us is a resounding yes that there is a better king and there is a better kingdom and that Jesus did come and that God is in control and that he is working in all things to bring about his goodwill and pleasure and plan and that he did come and live and he did die for our sin and he did rise from the grave to overcome sin and death. So when you place your faith in him, you will be saved. You will be set free. You will be brought back into community with him. You will live under the true king. You will live in the true kingdom. You will worship the one who is worthy of all glory. See, the beauty of Esther 
is that we see that God is a reality even when the lightning bolt doesn't flash down in a miraculous way in the natural world, but we see that his hand is in control of even our every moment. And that, when we understand it, is a greater miracle than them all. It reveals him in a deeper way than anything else. Many times as we go through this book, we'll begin to realize that many times, even when God seems the most absent, he's actually the most present. That he is at work in every detail, in every moment. See, sometimes he works like he does in 1 Kings with Elijah, where Elijah prays down the fire to consume the altar, and God just, boom, fire, altar consumed and saves his people And other times he works through people like Ruth who just wake up one morning and they've lost everything. They're bored. They go into a field and God brings Boaz into their life and saves his people. See, God is in control of all things and works in everything. And this book gives us a picture of God's providence. See, God's providence is God's ability to see the world provide, uphold, and order the world to a certain end that he has designed. That's what Esther is all about. Esther is about the miracle in which God remains anonymous, yet reveals he's never absent. And listen to me, he is working in your life. And so let me just challenge you today that if you don't feel him, you don't see him, you wonder if he's even there, you don't know what he would have for you to do in his life, do what Esther does in this book. And this is what we will see. God never shows up to her, but yet she seeks him and his will appears to her. She seeks him and his will comes to her. And sometimes God uses his providential work to call out to us to seek him. And when we seek him, we will always find him. See, when he seems absent, it's actually God yelling out, I need you to get closer to me. I want to reveal myself, but I'm calling you in. Lean in. Seek me. You will know me when you seek me. And so I just want to encourage you this morning, if you are not hearing from God, you don't even know if God exists, you feel like he is absent and his name seems nowhere Seek him. Seek him and you will find. And if you do not know him this morning and you're searching for that void and what might fill that void that you have for the satisfaction and the king and the kingdom that you were created to have, then that is God knocking on the door and saying, I'm here. Seek and you will find. If you know him, but you're not sure what to do and where to go and and what to, to, to do in your life, then seek him and you will find him. Listen to me, there is a better king. There is a better kingdom. His name's Jesus. And his hand is over all things. And the beauty is he works in us, around us, and through us. And he gives us the responsibility, the beautiful responsibility to seek him, to know him, to give glory to him in all that we do, and to reveal him in all that we are.